0: two three four all right everybody welcome to episode number 61 of the between the cracks podcast i am your host bill and with me as always is my co-host chris
1: chris little buddy how you doing well it's hot again and uh, I'm sitting in pulling my own sweat. So there's that. How about you?
0: <laughs> it just doesn't end, dude. I had uh, been going through a little bit of uh, a-, a crisis, Chris. As uh, I was telling you, I suffer from TMJ, which is technically your temporomandibular joint in your jaw. It's just extremely painful, like a like lock jaw or jaw pain. A lot of it is caused from tension. And I've had it on and off for... God, decades now. This is one of the more severe cases that I've had in in, in quite some time. And I was telling you off air what I had attributed that to, Chris, and that was trying to attend a Yankees and Mets game. In one week, not the Yankees playing the Mets, going to a Yankee game and then a separate Met game. And uh, as I told you, when I drove down to Yankee Stadium that fateful day, it it was about an hour and 45 minute drive. We get down there, dude, and they cancel the game as we're online for parking. Parking, which is $44, I might add.
1: Yeah, I remember uh, you telling me that, that's very unfortunate, and you said that they weren't allowing, uh, or they weren't reimbursing anybody, right? <laughs> not, not that I've heard of it. <laughs> I
0: think that you had to keep the receipt, and then you can use that again for whenever the game is made made up, but it's funny, I was like the third car in line to get into this parking garage, and all you can hear <laughs> from inside was screaming, like as people were making their way out, and then... You know, as we were leaving, we saw the cars coming off the Deacon and like little kids all all happy with their Yankee gear. You know, not really saying that the game has been canceled yet. (laughs) Oh, God. That's brutal. Oh, so brutal. So then the following week, I had tickets to go see DeGrom pitch. For the Mets, we get down there, dude, and I had all three kids with me, and uh, we get down there early, like 4.30, we're going to watch BP. Shockingly, they won't even let us in to watch it. The gates didn't open till 5, so we met we missed the Mets uh, batting practice, but we got to see the Brewers or whatever. Anyway, the rain kicked in right before game time, and they waited nearly three and a half hours before they called the game. So I was walking around the park for three and a half hours with three tired children then mind you they rescheduled the makeup game for the following day so i had to drive an hour and a half back go to bed and then drive an hour and a half back the following morning back down because
1: it was a day game
0: yeah back down to queens fuck that bro and that's what caused it was the traffic you know all about this new york traffic dude that's what caused the fucking problem and it was you know 684 is always a nightmare and then we took the cross county across the taconic so i mean it was all a disaster
1: so you went down three times and you watched one game.
0: We went down three times and we watched one game. And not to mention, it was part of a doubleheader. So you know Major League Baseball's new rules <laughs> that they are only seven-inning games. So we made three trips to watch seven innings. That was it. So um, that was the start of the tension. And it just manifested itself into <laughs> this TMJ issue I have. So I, I couldn't talk for like a day. Like yesterday or the day before was my worst day. And I actually had to put pressure on. On my jaw, just to speak. Anyway, Chris, this will segue nicely into what we're talking about tonight, because, uh, but we're staying in New York, and we're going to a place with even more horrific New York traffic. We are headed to Long Island. More specifically, Chris, we are headed to Amityville, Long Island. This was actually a listener's suggestion from one of our favorite patrons, Mr august cruz and he lives in the new york city area and he's not too far from this place so i think we better watch our step when trying to provoke these um potential demons that uh reside in this case because we don't want them going after old august do we (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) although better him than us
1: (laughs) i didn't want to say it (laughs) uh Yeah, in fact, we should have him uh, do a little investigation for us.
0: (laughs) You have a job for you, August. (laughs) Let's dig right into this, Chris, shall we? And in case you don't know what we're speaking of yet, we are talking about the 1974 murders of the DeFeo family. And as we said, this family lived in amityville new york so now the odd thing here chris is that there's kind of two different aspects to this whole case as i mentioned there were the murders that took place in the house and of course we're going to get into that but there was also this other side of it that came out after the murders that proclaimed that the house itself was haunted and um filled with supernatural spirits more or less demonic spirits and they in turn acted as a catalyst for the murders to be carried out as i said in 1974 to be uh more specific november 13th of 1974 23 year old ronald DeFeo jr now think about that think about how young 23 is this is this is just insane to me anyway ronald murdered his entire family that morning his father, Ronald DeFeo Sr., who was 43 years old, his mom, Louise DeFeo, 43 years old, and his four siblings. And now this, this gets a little bit tough because these kids are so young. His sister Dawn, who was 18, his sister Allison, who was 13, his brother Mark, who was 12, and his youngest brother, John Matthew, who was 9. Ronald murdered all six members of his
1: immediate family. It's tough to think about someone being able to kill any one of their family members, let alone their entire family. And obviously you're thinking mental illness of some sort because you have to literally just be kind of soulless to just continuously execute each member of your family. So the really interesting part about this we're going to get into is that he was using a, a thirty five caliber lever action rifle. So this gun wasn't silenced, it was probably pretty loud when the the shots went off, but yet there was no signs of any struggle or that anyone person heard the shot gets up, you know, everyone wakes up. I I think the parents were shot more than once, right? And then each of the siblings were shot once? Yes,
0: and think about how loud that must have been, right? And there's a theory where people say that they believe that the family must have been drugged or sedated in some way, because... Like, what you're saying, Chris, is it makes no sense that you would hear a gunshot go off in your house and how unbelievably loud that would be, and there would be no reaction
1: to that. That seems nearly impossible to me. So that you mentioned that the fact, which is what obviously brought about a bunch of questions, because how would no one hear that? How did people not get up? How was there no signs of a struggle? And apparently none of the victims, they found any drugs in their blood or in their system that would have... That they could have been
0: drugged or sedated. Yeah, the, you're absolutely right. The autopsy uh, showed that there was indeed nothing in their system, so they weren't drugged. So how was it possible that there were no signs of a struggle and then each of the family members were turned over in their bed and basically looked as if they were laying there peacefully? You know, like it, there were no signs that they, they put up any kind of fight.
1: Right, that's actually kind of the sick part here too is what basically seems like they were all arranged after the killing. Like you said, in the same position and it kind of just makes you cringe because it just gives you the idea of someone doing this and then moving the bodies in in a different position so that they're all aligned the same way. So it's just very kind of creepy to think about. But I was mentioning this earlier, it's interesting that he shot both the parents twice all the kids were only shot once so it's like what is going through his head to think that you need to shoot them twice and then the kids once
0: well i think that stems from the relationship that ronald jr had with ronald senior and from everything i've read the relationship itself was quite volatile like Apparently, there are even eyewitness accounts of the kid's friends being over the house and Ronald getting physically abusive with uh, the wife, Louise. So, I mean... That's hearsay and it's speculation, but the dad, Ronald Sr., did have a pretty bad reputation within the neighborhood and, uh, more importantly, within the family themselves. So, as you could see there, you know, like we're going off of the uh, the double gunshot wound, perhaps there was a little more uh, animosity there, and I, I think that might be the reason.
1: They say, anyway, that this probably took place within a matter of 15 minutes from start to finish. It only takes a couple seconds to put off two shots, right? So... 15 minutes is enough time for the first two victims, let's just say the parents, to cause someone else in the house to wake up, but you're also, you know, you're not talking about very young kids, right? So, like, they're old enough, I'd imagine, to, you know, be frightened or hear and do something, run, hide, whatever. It's just very interesting how this all happened and that there was no sign at all that anyone ran to a different part. I, I mean, maybe... Do we, do we actually know? Did, did somebody run towards him? Because I mean, we know that they're all safe, in the same position, so we don't know if they were necessarily all killed in the same position.
0: Well, the thing is, too, that they didn't find blood in other parts of the house. I mean, they found some gunshot uh, residue, but no blood in any other portions of the house. I think it's odd that the family didn't respond or react to this, but the neighbor said that they didn't hear any gunshots as well. Automatically, you'd probably think, oh, maybe he put a silencer on his thing or some kind of uh, sound suppressor. But uh, the police said they found absolutely nothing in the house.
1: He killed them in the early morning hours on the 13th, right? And then he went to work and then came back to the bar. To have some drinks and then went home, kind of just to like you know have an alibi of some sort, I guess. He committed
0: the murders at approximately 3:15 a.m. And now remember that time because that's going to come into play when we start discussing the paranormal aspect of this case. And we all know what 3:15 uh, is, Chris. You know, from the hours of uh, 3 a.m. to 4 a.m., we refer to that as the witching hour. Just keep that on the back burner for right now because that's going to come into play. We're going to now go into the morning of the murder and retrace Ronald's steps throughout the day. So at 3.15 a.m., he committed the six murders. From there, he went to work at the family dealership, Chris, the car dealership that his family owned. We should mention that Ronald had a long history of alcoholism and drug abuse, more specifically LSD and heroin. Unfortunately, his family rewarded him with a job to uh, try to help him uh, get his uh, life straightened out. And uh, apparently that didn't work out too well. But um, he proceeded to go to work that following morning. I'm assuming he showered and got rid of any kind of evidence that was on him. uh, Went to work as if nothing had happened. And he proceeded to make phone calls throughout the day to the house to, once again, provide an alibi to make it look like he was concerned about his family, uh, make it look like you know he's trying to call them, and or you know just doing regular day-to-day activities, you know, like you would just call to check in and whatnot. Uh, so anyway, he finishes his day at work, and then he, as you mentioned, made his way to the bar. And this is one of your typical Long Island uh, strip mall type bars, right? Nothing fancy. He goes in there; everybody knows him. So he's having drinks and whatnot. He goes to uh, one of the payphones, phones. And remember, this is 74. There's no cell phones around. So he goes to one of the payphones, phones, makes a call to the house. Once again, trying to provide himself with an alibi or make himself look innocent that he had no idea that the family has already been murdered. So he says to them he's going to go back to his house, which is right down the road and check on them. And then he'll be back. It's at that point, Chris, that we don't even know if he goes back to the house, but we do know that he, uh, made his way back to the bar, comes running into the bar and, uh, says, and I quote here, you got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. That's kind of odd, right? I mean, I think that they're shot, right? I mean, you would have to kind of, uh be able to tell that right away unless you ran right back out of the house if that's what he's trying to insinuate there so anyway he yells that out as he gets back into the bar and a small group of his friends made their way back to his house and that's when they make the discovery that not only are the parents dead but all four of the remaining DeFeo children have been murdered as well and it was at that point one of his friends made a call to uh, the police and uh, said that he believes that The family members were shot, and uh, they're all laying dead in their bed.
1: That's a little creepy in itself, too. Imagine being the friend of this guy and him telling you that he thinks his family was shot, and then you go run to the house where, who the hell knows, he could just fucking kill those people, too, for all we know. This guy's a murderer of six of his own family members. You don't even know what the hell this guy's going to do. Clearly, he has no remorse. Well, it's weird. Have you ever known a murderer? Have I ever known a murderer? No,
0: known a murderer. Like, somebody that you've known that has eventually committed a murder? Not that I know of. Oh, uh, well, th- this is crazy. I went to uh, high school with a kid, and uh, come to find out that he is doing two life sentences for a double murder, and, you know, like, and you know you can always say that you, you knew that something was wrong with the guy, uh, you know, hindsight's always 20 but there really was something wrong with this dude. So, he went on to murder these two elderly people in, in a different state, but, uh, you know, what got me thinking about this and, and trying to relate it to this is that when you're dealing with somebody who eventually commits a murder or has committed a murder in the past, you know, how lucky do you feel that it, it, they didn't do this to you? Like, you? like, we're referring to these friends here. How do they look at it all these years later that my God, I'm, I'm lucky that this guy never tried to kill me?
1: Seriously. I mean, because who knows what was going through his mind and why he chose his family or if there was a specific reason why he wanted to kill his family but like you don't know when someone's gonna snap and I doubt they know when they're gonna snap so you yeah you're right at any time you could be alone in the wrong place with this person and end up killed and I'm sorry but back then you were much less likely to get caught doing stuff than you are today obviously because of all the cameras and shit we have phones etc and you could have just been swept under the rug like you're talking about that that time era there's no cctv cameras there's
0: no cell phones no cameras in everybody's pockets
1: so yeah y- y-
0: your point is right that you know it's uh, was a lot easier to get away with at that point so let's get back to uh, the case here so when the police arrive they see that ronald DeFeo jr is uh, the lone remaining family member so they immediately take him in and, you know, they're questioning or whatnot, but they believe that he is a victim here himself because he came up with the story that he believed that his family was involved with the, the mob in some sort of way. And it was actually a mob hitman that carried out all of the uh, murders. But it didn't last long, Chris, because the following day, DeFeo confessed to the murder.
1: Yeah, and he he said, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. I mean, obviously, there's got to be suspicions at this point that he could have done it. But can you imagine someone plotting out this whole story and saying, you know, I think it was this mob person, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, the next day saying, I just, once I started, I couldn't stop doing it. I mean, that's just chilling.
0: Well, like he says that it went by so fast, so You know, maybe that's a a clue as to how it all happened. You know, maybe he just locked and loaded, locked and loaded, and just ran through the house before anybody had a time to really react.
1: All the victims were laying face down, and I think the reason for that is being obviously the, the the killer, especially if it's your family, doesn't want to see the faces of of the victim.
0: But you know, obviously, th- this guy had. If you look at his track record here, and I mean, we can only go back so far. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, he was an avid user of heroin and LSD, and you know, you know what that eventually does to your brain chemistry you know that just destroys it so if he was already predisposed to mental illness adding drugs and alcohol on top of that man that is just a absolute recipe for disaster
1: you know especially if there's drugs involved you're talking about a a situation where your your mind could be temporarily in that position and then when you come to you know you've just done something horrific that can never be changed again The psychiatrist for the prosecution
0: actually said that he believed DeFeo was suffering from antisocial personality disorder. And that would make sense. And, uh, you know, let me just give a quick definition of that. Antisocial personality disorder is a personality disorder characterized by long-term pattern of disregard for or violation of the rights of others. A weak or non-consistent conscience is often apparent, as well as a history of legal problems or impulsive and aggressive behavior. So, obviously, looking at the crime that he carried
1: out here, it tells you that he has a lack of a conscience. And not only that, but then he goes an entire day with clearly with no remorse because now he's just making up a story, calling... A house that he damn knows well no one's gonna fucking answer the phone because he just killed everyone the night before and then tries to make up a story at the bar saying that his family was killed and i mean you have to think this all out in your head and at the same time he's clearly not in the position where he wants to admit what he's done He's, he's trying to get away with it. What I'm saying about like there's no remorse because obviously when it comes to that point of remorse where you're like, oh, my God, what have I done? And then you go to the police. I don't know what I did, blah, blah, blah. And maybe that was the moment of for him when he finally said, I did it. And, you know, I, it happened so fast. I couldn't stop.
0: Well, uh, you're right to to that point in this story. But uh, as we move forward, we get to see that uh, Ronnie Jr. is still the rat that we all thought he was. Because in the following year um, of 1975, more specifically October 14th of 1975, that is when Ron DeFeo Jr.'s trial began. And he was on trial for the six murders of his family members. And uh, old Ronnie tried to mount the defense... Of insanity. Basically, saying that he heard voices in his head and those voices were telling him to commit the murders. So much so that he even said that there were entities that he saw flying about the house. And get this, Chris, there was actually one report where Old Ronnie says that one of the entities delivered the shotgun to him.
1: Wow, that's convenient. Obviously, this guy's got just fucked in the head. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And it, this was probably such an easy case for a, a defense lawyer to get to a, an insanity plea. Because just the fact that he clearly doesn't have any remorse, you know, it just goes to show you there's something wrong with this dude.
0: In the end, did they find old Ronnie to be uh, not guilty by way of insanity?
1: No, they actually found him guilty on six counts of second-degree murder, which gave him 25 years to life.
0: Oh, he was sentenced to six sentences of 25 years to life. I mean, he's obviously in there for life, but how does that work, the 25 years to life on six different
1: counts? Because he killed six different people. They have to give him a sentence for each one. They're not just going to be like, we're going to lump them all together and do this. So they'll charge him individually on each person. And obviously that amounts to him not ever getting out of prison. And and if it was just one sentence of 25 years to life, I mean, you have like good behavior and obviously, you know, going out to the parole board, whatever psych exams they may do on you, especially for someone like this. And like you're, you ha- may have opportunities to actually get parole and get out. I think they were just making sure, too, that this guy's not going anywhere, because he had many appeals or requests to the parole to actually be put on parole, and they were all denied every time. I mean, I, I don't know You could, if anyone could really find it in them to approve somebody like this.
0: Well, I, I should say, Chris, that uh, he recently did get out of jail. On uh, March 12th of 2021, Ronnie died. So uh, he did make his way out of prison, and I think the world is a better place for him being gone, but uh, we'll get into that a little further down the road, because as you're saying, this guy was doing life in prison, and he ultimately did do life in prison up until uh, his death, so there's a lot of speculation as to why he did this, you know, if it wasn't the insanity plea but obviously this guy had to have something wrong with him. as we said before that he had a tumultuous relationship with his dad and we said that he was no stranger to doing drugs and whatnot specifically heroin and lsd so there was a theory that ronnie wanted to kill his parents in order to collect his dad's life insurance policy which would make sense
1: Didn't this guy give, like, several different stories, too?
0: Oh, yeah. He he was so classy as to say that his sister Dawn, who he murdered, was indeed the killer of the father, that she actually murdered Ron
1: Sr. And then the mother, being distraught, ends up killing all the siblings with a thirty-eight caliber revolver, and then he killed his mother.
0: So, the one daughter kills the dad, according to this guy's story. So then the mom sees this, she's flipping
1: out, so she just runs into the room and starts killing the little kids? And then he he said the reason why he took the blame was because he was afraid to say anything negative about his mother. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, that would make sense. So that's where his story is voided out, because, you know, as the police said, there were no signs of a struggle. But according to this story, there's chaos raining down everywhere, right? Dawn is killing the father, the mother's distraught, she's running all over the house, then he has to kill the mother. But the cops say, and the evidence of the uh, findings say that All six members of that family were face down in the bed without any sign of a struggle. So uh, Ronnie is full of shit.
1: If there was any truth behind anything he was saying, he would stick to one story the entire time and go with it, at the very least. The
0: stories just were out of control with this guy. Get this one. This is a really weird one, too. He claimed to have been married at the time and living in New Jersey with his wife, and uh, she went by the name of Geraldine Gates. The crazy thing here is that the dates are all conflicted as far as when this wedding actually took place. This is really weird. He's saying that he was married at the time of the murder, but fast forward to 1986 when the ex-wife or the the wife or current ex-wife or widow, however you want to refer to her, Geraldine Gates, she actually gave an interview with uh, Newsday saying that, She married DeFeo in 1974. But in a different interview, she says that they were married in 1970. But uh, are you ready for this little tidbit, Chris? In their 1993 divorce case, it says (laughs) that they met in 1985 when Ronald was already in jail. They got married in 1989, four years after they met, and were divorced by 1993. So... Ron's assertion that he was in New Jersey with the wife at the time of the murders doesn't really hold any water. And um it's funny because that's referred to during the case by the judge. And I'm gonna quote the old judge here. Uh he says, quote unquote, I find the testimony of the defendant overall to be false and fabricated. His testimony That during the fall of 1974, he was married and lived with his wife and child in Long Branch, New Jersey, is incredible and not worthy of belief. He produced no corroborating evidence in this regard let me paraphrase a little bit here he signed a lengthy written statement describing in details his activity and in the statement chris he said that he lived with his family at 112 ocean avenue in amityville so he's basically saying that he lived with the family at the time of the murder and once again old ronnie's changing his story so at the time of the murder when he was interviewed he said that he lived there with his family in Amityville. Now he's trying to say that he was living with a wife that apparently he was never married to (laughs) or possibly never even knew at the time of the murders. And he was living with her somewhere in New Jersey. So, uh, the judge then concluded by saying the defendant's testimony that he did not shoot and kill the members of his family is likewise incredible and not worthy of belief. So basically the judge here is saying, Ron, go F yourself. You're a murderer and a liar. And we're throwing away the key. See you later, pal. So, Bill,
1: what do you say we jump into the paranormal side of things? Yes, Chris, because this story is not over
0: in the least. Get this. So, after the murders take place, a new family decides to purchase 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. And uh, might I mention, Chris, we should describe this house before we go any further. I've actually been to this house, Uh, not inside of it, but I think I've told the story once before. I've driven past it. I lived in Yonkers and my dad lives out in Massapequa or Seaford. This was during the the, the time when this shit was just going crazy, like late 70s, early 80s. And he actually took me (laughs) to the house to check it out. And I remember just being terrified of it because as most of the people who are listening to this probably know that the house had those quarter moon windows up at the top. It was like the top level of the house, and it kind of looked like a set of eyes. In anything that you see for this movie, those windows are really pronounced, and they always have like some kind of bizarre lighting coming out of them to, to give a, a more intense look to the house. But I'll tell you what, man. I mean, there was something very wrong about those windows whether somebody had been murdered there or not i would want nothing to do with that and luckily now in this day in 2021 the house had been remodeled quite a few times so those windows are indeed gone but where they are now no one knows but let's get back to the story chris please in 1975, the following year, a new family purchased the home. And that couple was George and Kathy Lutz. They moved in there with their three children to the beautiful Ocean Avenue in Amityville. What could possibly go wrong?
1: Chris, if your answer was everything, you would be correct. Let me start by saying this. If you were looking to buy a house and you knew that there had been the murder of six people in it. Would you want to live there? No. Even if I had torn the place down
0: and remodeled the entire thing, I I wouldn't be able to do it. Now, with that said, I don't know what kind of bargain they got on this place, but I will say this. The house is absolutely beautiful. Because, I mean, windows aside, because when you're looking at it from a street view, you're just getting one side of the house because... When you're coming down Ocean Avenue, the side of the house is what's facing the street. So you're just seeing uh, like maybe a porch and uh, a deck up on top. But what's interesting, Chris, on the back end, on the other side of the house, it leads right into this body of water. And I don't know if it's a Long Island Sound. I'm guessing it must be. But there's a boathouse and a huge body of water. So your backyard is just this beautiful body of water. And like I said, you have a boathouse, so, you know, it's easy to say I wouldn't move in there, but with a house of this nature, maybe I would go live in a boathouse.
1: <laughs> I don't know, man. And just think about sleeping there the first night and just know- knowing that what, is, what has happened in that house, and then just waiting for something to happen, because I would be. Well, apparently, so were the Lutzes, because, dude, they only lasted 28
0: days in their new home, so we got to go into some of the uh, bizarre paranormal things that they claimed to have experienced there. Now, Chris, (laughs) we're going to get into all those things that they experienced, but I should mention quickly that (laughs) there is speculation. Now, I don't know how accurate it is or how true it is, but apparently the Lutzes for an additional $400 were able to keep a majority of the DeFeo's furniture that was remaining in um, the house at 112 Ocean Avenue. I mean, how crazy is that? Like, I'm really hoping that that part of the story isn't true because we don't know what's true and what's not with all the things that we're going to come to uh, find out. But that is one of the more creepier things of this case, if indeed that is true.
1: Yeah, because they didn't move any of the furniture. Apparently, one of the other claims was that it was left in place, all the furniture. God, that's horrifying.
0: Now, Chris, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention some of the bizarre happenings that were reported by the Lutzes. So let's get into some of it, and uh, we'll uh, go through this as quickly as possible. Now, old George here, he uh, was known as having a very kind and uh, patient disposition. But apparently, upon moving in there, he became more and more irritable and aggressive as the days went on. And he was the one who began to notice some of the odd things that were happening. One of the more bizarre things that he noticed was that uh, every night he was waking up at 3.15 a.m., the exact time of the DeFeo murders. And that is when I leave the house. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to lie, dude. Like, I, I'll wake up all times of the night, you know go to the bathroom or eat, get a drink, whatever. And when I wake up at like 3, 3.15, I always feel a little funny. Like I'm always a little uneasy about going into the kitchen or something like that. And it's funny how that plays games with you. It's not like I feel something, but, you know, I start maybe freaking myself out. But, yeah, so that was the first thing that he noticed was that he was constantly waking up at 3.15 for this month that they lived there. And uh, the claim started getting a little more bizarre. He even said that, and now get this, Chris, he said that he had witnessed his wife and children levitating.
1: Well, that's not supposed to happen.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not something you want to see. And, uh, I mean, my God, I would do anything to uh, protect my children, anything. But uh, if I did walk into a room and saw all three of them levitating, I think they might be on their own for a little bit.
1: <laughs> They'll all be able to sort this out. I'm just going to leave.
0: <laughs> Let me get some coffee and uh, see what we can do here.
1: Um, <laughs> coffee down the street.
0: <laughs> but, yeah, so in addition to the, the levitations, he said that they discovered a... Hidden room. Now, that would freak me out. So, if you have a room that you find that was not in the original house plans of the house that you purchased, and you accidentally uncovered it, that would definitely freak me out. And whether you found something in it or not. Well, it would freak
1: me out even more in a house that you know had six people murdered in it. (laughs) very very good point chris very good point yeah so a- any little thing that you
0: find could start becoming a sign right <laughs> when you right. when you know the history of this place anything that happens you could start taking as oh my god you know we, we got to get the hell out of here baby
1: seriously there there's things that you just kind of shake off at home normally right like oh uh, you know you thought you put something here and it's there or whatever you forgot it but when you're in a place like this and whether or not it was just your fault and you had a you know you didn't recall correctly, you're just gonna think that it was moved by a ghost or something.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that like I said, that's your mind just just messing with you. Chris, there are a wide array of incidences that happened here that Lutz has claimed, and there are just far too many for us to get into great detail about. But uh, I, I have a list here <laughs> that I I found these to be the most interesting. Uh, we already mentioned the hidden room, but uh, they said that they noticed. Faces in the fireplace, uh, and apparently um, one face was of a, and I guess we, we can just call it a, a, demon pig. It was a, a pig-faced creature with uh, glowing eyes of some kind. Take that as you will. And in addition to that, they even said that that they had a crucifix that was hanging on a wall, and they woke up in the morning and the thing was upside down.
1: That's a true sign that there's a demon in the house. <laughs> yeah,
0: that would be odd if indeed happened. Now, get this. They said that rooms were to fill with flies. And uh, here's one that I found kind of odd. They said that there would be spontaneous, pungent odors coming from certain
1: rooms in the house. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I would like a list of the food items that were eaten. <laughs> Come again, Chris. Come again. I think I would like a uh, a list of food items that were eaten in the past by the family members. Perhaps, maybe it was chili night. Um, <laughs> <My man. laughs> Unless George
0: was just crop dusting him around the house and,
1: <laughs> and pinning pin, <laughs> it on the ghost.
0: Blaming <laughs> it on the pig. <laughs> 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 Alright. Oh, yeah. Alright. Uh, so, uh, here, but now here's the weird thing, Chris is that, uh, oh my god, this is, we're going to get some one star reviews from this. But, uh, we, um, we come to find out that the Lutzes, believe it or not, <laughs> took a polygraph and yeah, whatever. You know, everybody has their own thoughts and uh, feelings on polygraphs. I personally think they're bullshit, but uh, uh, the Lutzes did take a, a series of polygraph exams and they were found to be telling the truth from uh, these exams. And get this, Chris, this is the worst part. They lost money on this house. Now, I'm all for creating a buzz and, and and wanting to believe in something more than what we have here on Earth. But that comes to a dead halt, my man, when I start losing money. So I don't know what to believe here at this point. Now, you know, there is a lack of credibility in some of their claims. But to think of the fact that they lost money on this deal after one month living in this home. I, I don't know. Maybe they couldn't afford it and they were looking to try to get out of it.
1: So apparently the couple didn't have any problems uh, paying for the house, not only because it was well under the market price at $80,000, clearly because of the recent events, but they also had gotten a large amount of money that they were able to put a down payment on this house with the money that Kathy got from selling her mother's house. Now, Kathy's kids, the kids in this house, they were not George's kids, they they were Kathy's kids from another marriage.
0: So they obviously weren't struggling for money. They could have easily just been freaked out and and wanted to get the hell out. But as we said, some of their claims were obviously dismissed and uh, were proven to be false. Like There was one claim, Chris, that they said that they had a priest come over to bless the house. And once the police was giving a blessing on the house, there was a voice that said to the priest... Get out! <laughs> and he then warned the Lutzes that they need to get out. But here's the thing. They interviewed the priest later
1: on. He said that he was never there. There's a lot of that going on in this case, too. So if you look a little further into it, we obviously can't go over every little thing. But there was talks about how some of these stories were just made up by the lawyer. Not only the lawyer, though, Chris. We shouldn't mention who else comes
0: into play in this case Someone that uh, listeners of our show might be quite familiar with. And that would be the one and only Ed and Lorraine Warren.
1: Yes, because we have discussed them back when we were talking about your good friends, Bill Annabelle.
0: Oh, from the Conjuring movies, yes indeed. We should uh, preface this by saying that Ed and Lorraine Warren are paranormal investigators there's a lot of controversy surrounding them whether their claims are accurate because what often happens once the warrens get involved chris there tends to be books tv shows interviews movies that come out after their findings and all those things equal one thing (laughs) Money. Yes. So you got to take everything you hear from them with a grain of salt. Some people believe in the paranormal. Some people don't. But the one piece of evidence that they provided us with, uh, and probably the most famous, is a picture entitled The Amityville Ghost Boy. And I'll post this on Instagram so uh, everybody can get a chance to look at it. Now, Chris, this picture was apparently taken by Ed and Lorraine Warren a mere few weeks after the Lutzes left their house in fear. Now, upon looking at this, and obviously this is a picture from the 70s, so it's grainy, Everybody has that yellow tint, it looks a little creepy just in and of itself, just by the uh, deterioration of it. Now, if you're looking at it, you'll see a railing of a staircase on the left-hand side. You have one door that you're looking at straight ahead into one room, and then there's another door that is adjacent to that door. The handrail going up to what I assume is the third story provides a little bit of a barrier, but it's right above that rail that you see what appears to be two glowing eyes and uh, a quite miniature statured body,
1: for lack of a better phrase, Chris. Right, it definitely looks like a child. Now remember, when someone puts in the caption of a photo, the first thing you're going to look and see is what they're saying right if you're gonna say oh this is a picture of a demonic small boy you're like oh yeah that looks like a small boy now obviously being the size of the head and how low it is it definitely looks like it would be a child and it definitely looks like a face you know when when eyes get captured in certain lighting especially with cameras back then I'm sure you get that appeal or that that look of that like glowing eyes thing so who, who the hell knows I will say if I took this picture and after taking it, I saw that in the picture. I'd probably never return to the house. I don't care if it was doctored or not. <laughs> uh, it's definitely creepy. And, and because of the photos, what they looked like back in the day, it definitely adds to the creepiness.
0: Like So like I said, take everything here with a grain of salt. The Warrens are obviously interested in the paranormal, and they're going to attempt to find whatever they can. And it was at that point, if they do have findings, they can... Then uh, discuss them on all the various outlets that we already spoke of. Now, to wrap this all up, Chris, and this is where I think some of the claims begin to lose a little bit of credibility. Because um, a few years later, the house is sold again. It's it's changed hands quite a few times. But this time it was sold to a Mr. and Mrs. Cromarty. And get this, Chris, they bought the house for $55,000. A, a waterfront property in Suffolk County for $55,000. Could you imagine? Wow. I mean, obviously, this is dated back to 77, but my God, if you held on to that thing today, good grief.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because now you're talking about enough years passed by with the whole allure about, behind this house, especially for people that are super into paranormal or into cases like this, especially being, I mean, God, everyone knows about the Abneyville Horror.
0: Oh, my God. Well, they they actually went on to change the address. They changed it from 112 Ocean Avenue to 108. But I don't think you're really fooling anybody there.
1: Unless you change the appearance of the house enough. And it's funny because they, they mentioned that this was done so that it wasn't as easy for people to find the house and to harass you know, or come by and visit.
0: Back to what I was saying about... You know, this case kind of losing credibility because the Cromartis went on to say for all the years that they lived there, they never experienced one thing. And <laughs> remember the secret room I mentioned before?
1: Yep. Uh,
0: the Cromarties say that it was well known when they were showing the house and on the, the prints of the house themselves that it was nothing but a small closet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And suddenly it becomes a secret room. <laughs>
0: Just a small closet, and get this, Chris, that was not concealed in any way. So it's basically a door, you know, probably, probably a three-quarter length door that, you know, for holding, like, shoes or some other kind of uh, bullshit, whatever you want to put in there.
1: I will say, though, I would probably never go in it. <laughs>
0: uh, no, I mean, I, I, it's easy for me to talk bravely when I'm behind this uh, microphone. I could be as tough as I want, but if you want me to go into this house and open that door, <laughs> the answer is no. But as of today, Chris, uh, all the owners of this home have said they've experienced nothing. The only problem that they have are people that are interested in this case and continue to this day to come by and look at the house.
1: So to just go briefly into where this house currently stands, and you said this is 108 Ocean Avenue, right? Yes, I did. Well, it currently is estimated at $878,000. So if they held on to that house you're you're talking about an insane return but god that's painful they actually blurred the house on if you look on Zillow that the house is actually blurred which clearly is meant to just conceal the identity of the house so people don't know what the Amityville horror house looks like, I guess.
0: Well, dude, I meant to bring that up to you, because I went and did a street view search of it, and then the house is blurred itself, so I I did it at night, so I started getting freaked out, like, holy shit. (laughs) 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 I I didn't even think that it was done purposely at at the time, but I'm like, you know, now, yeah, that was the reason that they did it. As we said, I mean, there's two different parts of this story. It's like the original and then the sequel, right? You have... These terrible murders that took place, but then you have this completely different story of this paranormal house and this house that is controlled by a, a demonic spirit, right? So, I mean, th- this is a really interesting case, and it, it's still to this day, you know, I mean, mind you, these murders took place in 1974. To this day, in 2021, this story still garners tons of attention, and tons of people still drive by this place and take pictures of it nearly every day. We got to get the hell out of here. I'm starting to burn alive in this place. Before we go, uh, what says you, bud? Uh, Do you think that there was anything paranormal going on at 112 Ocean Avenue that could have caused... Let me me also say this. That could have caused Ronald DeFeo Jr. to act in the manner that he did.
1: I'm going to say... No. I'm going to say that these were... Definitely the murders of somebody who is mentally ill. And I won't necessarily jump to say that the house didn't have some sort of freakiness going on inside of it with the the owners right after. I think it was definitely exaggerated. But to me, it makes no sense for a family to buy a house with three kids and then leave it within 28 days and then lose money on it. Uh, it. It just doesn't seem logical to me for someone to intentionally put themselves in that position. The only thing that I would imagine is if they thought they were going to get a financial gain out of it somehow, and then that would be sick and twisted on their part. But I don't know. Maybe something there was a little something going on.
0: Chris, I, I'm on board with you. Um, the fail was obviously a drug addict and an alcoholic who uh, was deeply disturbed and especially when you start doing lsd and just the way it completely obliterates your mind and and your and your ability to think rationally especially if there was any kind of tumultuous relationship with the father or the parents in general that were reported you could see that this was just a ticking time bomb waiting to uh go off and i think that's exactly what happened and then uh you know my thinking here is that the Lutzes went in. I think maybe they thought, you know, they can get this house at a very good price. Maybe they can make it work and stay there. But uh, I think eventually they just started freaking themselves out. And that was it, man. They split. And I, I can't blame them.
1: Nope. Wouldn't have made the purchase in the first place. And, uh, yeah,
0: absolutely right. Chris, uh, I would just leave well enough alone with the house. And by no means would I be purchasing that place. Now, with all that said, Chris, this has been an extraordinary long episode, and uh, I've got my work cut out with editing this bad boy. So uh, let's wrap this up. If, oh, it's getting to me. The demons are getting to me, Chris. If you, whoa, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com, or you can find us on Instagram at the Between Cracks podcast. You can message us there. We'll get back to you. If you would love to become one of our lovely patrons, you can do that by following the link in the show notes. Uh, just click on that, and you know, we have all different tiers that offer uh, different things for our lovely patrons. Also, if you want any merch, you can find us on Teespring, and just search BTC. That link is in the show notes as well. So, woo, with all that said, Chris, why don't you say we wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land the fondest oh. A farewells. <laughs> oh, oh. my man. A hundred minutes. Dude, this is our longest one yet, dude.